0: Alright, um, your packet that you got when you came in uh, should have not only the verses on there, um, some thing I'm going to touch on in just a moment on the back, um, and then uh, the main uh, worksheet that we're going to be working through tonight. Obviously, the last few weeks we've been going through uh, defining the church and looking at different facets of the church, what, for what reason the church exists, what purpose the church actually serves. Um, And one thing that I I have kind of become convinced of, I think, over time, in just my own involvement in the church, my own upbringing in the church. I I was born and raised in a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church, um, pretty much all my life. And and so um, having grown up in it, uh, I'm convinced that I don't think I put together what we are as a church body until much later in life didn't really understand exactly what kind of thing I was a part of until uh, my adulthood. And, and I think that that's probably the case for many people, that we might, whether we know it or not, or whether this is our intention or not, join a church or take part in a church body, and it, it becomes for us something of a social club. That, it, it, whether, that may not be our intentions in making it that, But our associations with that church body are relatively loose. Uh, And what I mean by that is uh, I would expect that I would make some friends there. I would expect that there would be something for me to do, that they would sort of um, have some sort of things for me to be a part of, and that there would be some friends there. However, uh, I think the boundaries around my life typically are pretty clearly set. You don't have the right to tell me this or that, and, and, and we kind of bristle when people confront us, and I think that's, that's mostly pretty natural, and not supernatural, I think that's mostly pretty natural, uh, that, we, that we, uh, we come upon that by birth, that we really don't like it when people tell us what to do. And, and, and we don't really think, honestly speaking, that they really have the right to do that. And what we find out, as you turn the pages of Scripture, and you know what you're looking for, it screams at you on every page, that actually what happens when you join a church is that you give up that right to autonomy. And the boundaries of your life are actually torn down now. And that the other people around you, who also are called member of the church body, have every right to come into your life and speak to the things that they see there. And it's then that we really find out what it is that you wanted to be a part of to begin with. And I think for many of us, we realize I actually didn't want to be a part of the church as it's defined biblically. And so tonight what we're going to look at is a topic that I think because of that mentality that exists in the church has fallen out of favor with the church uh, maybe globally, certainly the church in America for sure. Uh, And that is the topic of church discipline. Now, we have talked about this a little bit last week when we got into the responsibilities of member of the body, what what congregational rule actually means. And one of the things that congregational rule entails is church discipline. Not only as church members do you really have uh, authority in who is or is not a member of your church body, because you are responsible, second, to guard the gospel. That is your prerogative. That is the authority that you have that's given to every single Christian inside the body of Christ is that you are appointed to guard the gospel. Paul even says in Galatians, look, if, if I come to you and I tell you a gospel other than the one I preach to you, then you're to condemn me. So the church body has a responsibility and when they're listening to what's being preached to be able to guard the doctrine of the church and to be able to discern whether this is doctrine that is in Scripture and is is proven in Scripture, or if this is doctrine that is totally foreign to Scripture uh, altogether. So in addition to those two things, there comes the responsibility of actually exercising church discipline. And so tonight, I want to dig in just a little bit deeper into that to talk about what does it look like uh, I think we've seen some scriptural evidence. We'll look at some more. But really, we want to go to its foundation. Why is it that discipline becomes necessary in a church body? And then talk about some real practicality of, of how what that looks like, how I actually do that, what that would look like in, in terms of our church-wide uh, speaking. So let's take a, fir- a look first here at the, the first little point. We have to remember... The fundamental purpose for which we are gathered, uh, that that's, b- takes precedence over everything else. Why are we gathered? And that is that the church exists to manifest the glory of God on the earth. So that is, we all going all the way back to the very beginning, we said we exist for the purpose of displaying His glory on the earth. Now, what complicates that fact and what should intimidate us just a little bit is that we are sinners. So, we all have attractions to one kind of sin or another. And you're given the task as a church body to demonstrate His glory to the community around you. So, then becomes the question of how do we do that. Look at Ephesians 3.10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So you understand what he's saying? It's not just to Tuscaloosa. Now, of course, that's going to be the case as well, that we're demonstrating the glory of God to the community around us. But we're demonstrating the glory of God to rulers and authorities, to principalities and powers. Who are these? This is a spiritual world, too. Our our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of this present darkness. We're, we're, We're to demonstrate God's salvation to Jew and Gentile, to beings that thought that that could never happen. That it was impossible for humanity to be redeemed. That we as a redeemed group are demonstrating God's glory even to them. And in the context of Ephesians there, he's talking about the unity between Jew and Gentile. Jew, Jew and Gentile were separated, they were alienated, hostile in mind, they were way out there, estranged, and God, through Christ, brought them together and created one new man in Christ. And this is an example of His glory not only to the world around us, but to principalities and power. So, What then that means is that if we go all the way back into the Old Testament, we see that Abraham and his descendants were to be his special people. That's how they were created, a people for his own possession. And he reiterates to them time and time again that their holiness, the holiness of the people of Israel, is to reflect his own holiness. This is told to them time and time again that a people that are gathered together in my name are supposed to reflect my glory. And so he preserves his witness to the nations through establishing his covenant there at Mount Sinai, which we see detailed in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and into the time of the writing of the prophets. Look at Leviticus 19:1 to 2 He says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, "'You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy.'" Look at Leviticus 11, 44-45. "'For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any of the swarming things that crawl on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy.'" Look at Leviticus 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So we have this precedent set for the people of Israel that the precise reason why you are to be holy is because you're called by my name. Period. I'm holy, and the way I want to be represented to the rest of the world is as holy. This is precisely the problem with Adam, isn't it? That God is represented by Adam. Adam is effectively a vice-regent for God, a representative on the earth, capable of exercising rule and dominion, and his rule, that's what he says, let us make man in our image, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds. So he, he mankind, Adam, is supposed to rule in in God's stead, on behalf of God, as something of a vice region. And the problem with Adam is that he sins. And that is not how God wants to be represented. So when he calls together the people of Israel, he gives them precisely the same task. You are to represent me, and you are to be holy because I am holy. You can't represent a whole, something holy if you're not holy. So you have to be holy because he is holy. Now he sets forth in this, in this law a distinction between clean and unclean, and and this becomes a very difficult task for us as we read through the text of Scripture because we get to clean and unclean, and in our mind we translate that to sinful and not sinful, right? But that becomes a real problem when you get to something like, and the world will bring this up. This is why I'm bringing this up. When you get to something like um, a woman's cycle, she is called unclean. Is that sinful? Well, a lot of people in the world read that, and they translate that to sin. Well, this is what the Bible thinks of that. And so, she's sinful? What are you telling me? This is crazy. That's archaic, and we're moving away from that. That's not at all what it's saying. The reason that people become unclean when they touch dead bodies, or during that time of month, or any time there's blood involved, is because that is a symbol, blood is, of death death that was brought about by Adam's sin. It's Not that she's She's sinful. It's just that blood, by its very nature, dead bodies or whatever, is a symbol of death and they become unclean. You cannot, God is not going to interact in that capacity with us while we carry about the signs of death. And the same is true of the holiness and the unholiness that's there represented in Leviticus. So, Israel exists with this testimony of God's faithfulness to His promises to Abraham. And the individuals then are excluded from the community by means of this Levitical code when they become unclean. So whether it is through sin that they become unclean, or whether it is through just their natural interactions with death, a mortician, someone who buries a dead body, is for a time considered unclean because he carries about uh, the association with death that was brought about by Adam. And so th- there is a, a provisions made in the Levitical Code for all of this, for man to continue to interact with God and to represent Him in the utmost of holiness in spite of the fact that He is not holy. He lives in a dead and dying world. And He Himself is dead and dying. So, But, but we also see in the Levitical Code a, a sharp division one between the sin of an individual or the uncleanness of an individual and then special kinds of sins that were, well, for lack of a better way of saying it, heinous, right? When, uh, what, what we're reminded of is there are serious sins that involve capital punishment where the person is to be absolutely cut off entirely and severed from all of the Abrahamic promises. And what the people of Israel are to be reminded about is that it's an honor to belong to God's people and membership in God's covenant community has both obligations and privileges. They're both involved in the body. Yes, there are obligations involved and there are privileges involved in the body. Uh, Look at Leviticus 17. Verse 10, If anyone of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and I will cut him off from among his people. I myself will set my face in Leviticus 20, verse 3-5, to five, I will set my, my face against the man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to, my, to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. Exodus 30, uh, verses 37 and 38. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves... It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes it any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. Uh, Leviticus seven twenty to 21 But the person who eats of the flesh and the, of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean, detestable creature, and then eat some of the flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offering, that person shall be cut off from his people. You get the idea time and again. He reminds them that they are cut off from the people when they violate his laws so grievously as to kind of shove it in his face. After he's already set forth what the parameters are, when they go to the take it to the next step of um, of violating those commandments willingly, he, it, they are to be cut off from the people. Even to the extent that those who don't cut off the man who's supposed to be cut off, they will also be cut off. It, there's an obligation that comes with being a member of the body of Christ or a member of, of God's people, and, it, um, and, and it, it has certain obligations to it. So then when we get to the New Testament, the church is called to exercise um, discipline because of an expectation of holiness that remains on God's people. This doesn't change just because we cross over from New Testament to Old Testament. What you're going to find, shockingly, is that there there is not as much of a distinction between the Old Testament and New Testament as perhaps we would like to think there is. It is a new covenant. Yes, we have been redeemed by Christ. But there are many parallels that continue and remain from Old Testament to New Testament when it comes to God's people. God's people have always had the expectation of holiness on them, and that remains even in the New Testament. The church was founded by Christ, and its success is promised and ensured by Him. And He commits uh, to form holiness in His people through His Spirit. Look at 1 Peter 1, 14-16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So this commandment, to be holy as I am holy, transfers from the people of Israel to the body of Christ, to whom Peter is writing. Peter doesn't see this commandment having been absolved in any way. You still are called by the name of Christ now, And in even a much greater way, you are to be holy as God is holy because you represent Him on the earth. Um, So what that means then is that Christ's Spirit uses the local body of believers to form and maintain the special holiness of God's people in part through the exercise of church discipline. Look at how the author of Hebrews commends discipline to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded... This is Hebrews 12, 1 to 14 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured for sinners For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields uh, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame... May not put out of joint, but rather, be put out of joint, but rather be healed, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see this? The, the, we, we asked or the problem was posed in the very first session of this is, how is it that we can represent the glory of God to the world around us, or the principalities and powers, for that matter, if we are sinful people? And what the New Testament lifts up to us, and even the Old Testament, is that the discipline that the Lord gives to us, whether it be perhaps supernatural discipline, that's straight from Him, uh, as Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians, where some have died and some have fallen asleep because uh, of improperly taking the Lord's Supper, direct discipline from the Lord, or whether that's discipline from the other church body, being confronted in sin, other church members confronting us, stepping into our lives. That reproof is really, in essence, why we are a part of a church body. You might say that church discipline is at the very core of what it means to be a member of a church body. That you actually have people around you able to step over the boundaries that you previously had set up that have now been torn down by Christ, and those people are now able to confront you in sin. And thereby, after you receive the Lord's discipline through them, you grow in holiness. That's what he's saying. So discipline is fundamental to the very idea of membership. That someone would actually step into my life and say, that is wrong. That's sinful. All right. Part of that discipline occurs through the interaction of the people as one member of Christ's body cares for another. That's, I'd say, most commonly. Church discipline is not a supernatural intervention in the, in the sense where it's just God and you disciplining you. That happens, of course, as we've said, but it, it's not only that. And I would say probably not most commonly is it that. Most commonly is it the Spirit working through another member of the body of Christ to confront you and to correct you. Look at Galatians 6, 1-2. Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 2 Thessalonians 3.6 Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Second Thessalonians 3:14 to15, this finishes the thought. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So what, what form is that to take? Is it to take uh, 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 when he says, uh, "Have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed? What form is that to take? It's in the form of a warning. You need to listen. You're engaged in such deep sin that you're failing to represent Christ to the people around you. And that's a serious transgression because if you're called by the name of God, wherever you go and whatever you do, you associate the name of God with that thing. No matter what you're talking about, no matter what you're saying, Whatever your attitude is, you are, because of your membership in the body of Christ, associating Christ's name with that thing. So then that is the question for us. When we engage in sin, would we be comfortable if we stopped for a second and just thought, I am associating Christ's name with this? If I'm bitter, if I'm grumbling, if I'm complaining, if I'm gossiping, if I'm looking at pornography, if I'm doing a whole host of things, that is the question before you. Are you willing to associate Christ's name with this? That is why we are supposed to, and we're commanded to, to go to such great lengths to church discipline. is because it's the name of Christ that's at stake. It's not really even so much Emmanuel Baptist Church's name. Or First Baptist, or whatever church it is. It's the name of the Lord Jesus that's at stake. And how often has the name of the Lord been dragged through the mud outside the walls of a church, any church, because of the behavior of the members inside? But when the church actually clarifies the gospel for a person, that's sin, and it's not tolerated. It also clarifies the gospel for the world around us. No, we don't. We're different than that. We're called to be different than that. And he, he even says in Hebrews, he's challenging those who are being disciplined to respond positively to it, to understand what that discipline is. And God's children actually do respond positively to it because they're his children. So, this concept of church discipline obviously can culminate in something like exclusion from the church or excommunication from the church. And we find that in Matthew 18, verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So he, Jesus is going through the steps that should be taken, and he outlines at least three things. First, there's a private confrontation. You and him alone, he says. Then there's a small group confrontation. Two or three, perhaps maybe a few more. Finally, there's a congregational confrontation. So it's private, then small group, then congregational. You're establishing first and foremost that the sin that you're charging this person with, you should actually be charging them with. So somebody comes, somebody sins against you. The challenge then is actually telling them, oh, this is a big hurdle. This is a really hard one. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, so-and-so said such-and-such. Such. The question that I should be asking, if I, whether I do or not, I don't know, but what I should be saying back to them is, what would you say to them? Because even gossip is a sin against you. Because it's a sin against the Christ that you represent. We'll talk about this Sunday. Your identity has been forever changed. Your identity is that of Christ. Period. Your identity as whatever you were before, man, woman, black, white, whatever it was, has been subsumed, absorbed, by Christ's identity. You are Christian. And so what that means is that wherever you go, you carry about the name of Christ. Sins against you are really sins against Christ in any way. So, normally that those kinds of statements come to me in the form of gossip or slander or something like that. So-and-so said such-and-such. Such. Normally that's what it is. Well, that's a sin against you. It's a sin against the body. So the question is, what do you say back to them? This infringes. It infringes on a lot of cultural boundaries. There's a lot of cultural things, not only in the South, but things, places like Japan where there's an honor culture. It's difficult for a younger person to confront an older person in sin. That's a shameful thing. So church discipline becomes a very challenging thing. The biblical culture that Jesus is laying out becomes a very challenging thing depending on where we grew up. It's hard to actually say to somebody, that's sin. And you need to repent of that. Very difficult. But I think if anything, Jesus' words to us are meant to convey patience. The temptation would be, you sinned against me, you're done. I'm cutting you off. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And if anything, what I think Jesus is instilling in the disciples is a slow go towards discipline. In the passage that comes right before that, he talks about these little ones who are tempted to stray, in other words, sinning against you or sinning against the church, how God cares for them, and you should show as much care for them as God does. That's why the patience of going to them, taking two or three more, Taking the congregation, and then finally, at the end, letting them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. So these steps may, they may be, I don't necessarily think they're exhaustive. I think a church can go a, a very, take a very slow approach to that. I think they can and should, just depending on the nature of the situation. But the outcome or the, the purpose of the confrontation is the same. It's the disciples' repentance. That's what you want. That's all, all you want. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, uh, it's, which is in your packet, it, it's actually reported. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and read that. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man's, man has his father's wife. Are you arrogant? Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit, and as if present, I, am already, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with, with you in the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to, listen to what he says, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The idea of handing this person over to Satan is to literally remove them from church discipline. Remove them from the protections of the church that's there to safeguard someone from falling into sin. And he says, hand him over to Satan. Let Satan devour. But the purpose is so that his flesh might be destroyed. That desire to go after the things that Satan loves might actually come to ruin, and he might come to repentance so that in the day of the Lord he would be saved so that he would be restored through repentance and the church is to welcome him back in. So even in the church discipline process, even when the person is removed from membership, it's supposed to be a wake-up call for them to repent and to come back to the fold. That's the purpose, is repentance. Um, So the reality is that discipline, church discipline, is inextricably bound up with the church that Jesus envisioned. But that discipline should not occur alone. Rather, it should occur as part of a larger covenant by the entire church to pray and work for one another's formation in Christ. What we do as, a, as church members when we come together and join the body is whether we know it or not or whether it's made explicit or not, we make a covenant together with one another. Now, church covenants... Used to be, some of you, had, did any of you have a church covenant when you were young? Maybe in a church you grew up with, Skeeter back there, yep, okay, a couple of people. Look on the back of your handout, this would be an example of something like what a church covenant would look like. This is a covenant that members take together. They understand that this is what I mean when I say I'm a member of the body of Christ, and in violation of this covenant, if I wander from this covenant, that's when the church needs to do something about me. Right? That's basically what you're saying in church membership. So let's, let's kind of read, go through this together. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to Him, and having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now, Relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's scriptural? Absolutely. That's what we should be doing. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes of the members of a Christian church, exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasions may require. So far, biblical. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Uh-oh. Oh, wait. Oh, no. Nor neglect to pray for ourselves and for others. This is straight out of Hebrews 10. We will endeavor to bring up uh, such as may at any time be under our care in the n- nurture and admonition of the Lord and by pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, straight from Scripture. We will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor to, with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. Scriptural? Yeah, so far. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship, ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expanses of the church, or the expenses of the church, excuse me, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. So far, scriptural? Not expanses of the church. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 slip that in there. now. Uh, 9. We will, when and if we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with some other church where we carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. They don't necessarily have to have that covenant, but the gospel needs to be preached, and this is what needs to be expected of us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. What are we doing in this covenant? We're just affirming what the Scriptures actually command of us but we're also setting before the church what the expectations of me as a member really are. How can you walk around in, a, in the church as a member and not know what anybody expects of you? That's asinine, right? And, and sometimes for uh, maybe if you, if you haven't grown up in this or don't totally understand, or maybe you're coming to Christ for the first time and how can you be expected to catalog all of the Scripture and what all things are commanded to you all at once? That's part of what the church covenant reiterates in membership, is that this is what I'm signing on for. This is what I want to be a part of. What line item on that church covenant would you say, I don't want to be a, church, a part of a church that does that? Well, none of them. I mean, that, that is essentially the definition of a, of a Christian and a church body. So it's, it, that's what membership is. It's, it's people coming together and covenanting together. But that interferes so much with the way that we understand church membership. My relationship to Jesus is me and me alone. You have no responsibility in my relationship to Jesus. He is my personal Lord and Savior. Well... It's not entirely what Scripture is calling. Calling you to be a part of a body. So then, what does Paul say? Paul calls back to this Old Testament, what we talked about last week, this Old Testament congregational practice of discipline when an individual is caught in sin, that you're to purge the evil person from among you. We saw, that's repeated, reiterated time and time again in Deuteronomy, as the people are called by the name of the Lord, they're called to represent His holiness, and if someone violates His holiness, then they are to purge the evil person from among them, right? Now here, we have Paul reiterating at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, uh, in verse eleven uh, verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not... Excuse me, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. He just pulls that right out of Deuteronomy and places it right here as an obligation of the church. Same obligations that the community around Sinai had. You as a church body have in church discipline to purge the evil person from among you. Paul obviously took those words. I kind of got ahead of myself here, but took those words straight from Moses to expel those who who worshipped other gods, who give false witness, who practice premarital sex, adultery, or certain kinds of slavery. Uh, That's all in the law of Moses. He applies this now to a person who has his father's wife, assuming that would be probably like his stepmother. Um, So, though the offender, this is where the Christian church exercises an an immense amount of grace, Um, the offender who had once claimed Christ is Claim held no credence because of a lack of repentance. Now, on the evidence of repentance, that gives that gives testimony to the fact that the Spirit is dwelling within. So when he comes to repentance, he's welcomed back in the body of Christ, not because, well, finally, you did what's good, but repentance is a sign of the indwelling Holy Spirit, a sign that you're a part of the body of Christ. And that's why you're to be welcomed in. Because the church is supposed to, the boundaries that the church is supposed to draw around membership is inside and outside the body of Christ. That's what we're doing. So a person shows no evidence of being a member of the body of Christ, no evidence of repentance, which is a sign of the indwelling Holy Spirit. They're outside the body of Christ. Evidence of repentance inside the body of Christ. Get it? So the nature of exclusion Paul commanded is excommunication. And what that typically looks like in a church body is not get out of our building, you're not welcome here. It's exclusion from the Lord's table. That's the covenant that we're making together. Every month that we take of the Lord's Supper, we're re-upping the covenant, essentially. We're saying, this covenant of Christ's blood still applies to me. My identity is in Christ and is signified as such by taking of the Lord's Supper. The person who is under discipline, the person who is, shows no evidence of membership in the body of Christ, that they're not a member, that cup, Paul says, makes us one body. Well, if they show they're no evidence of the fact that they're part of the body, that's what they're removed from, is the Lord's table. You can't take the covenant of, of having Christ's blood apply to you if, if you remain unrepentant in sin. That's, it, that's, that's not what the covenant is for. That's not what the Lord's Supper is for. So what then does, I think this is always the question. So so what merits that kind of disciplinary action? I think similar to the Old Testament, we should think of it as something that's heinous and public. When something is heinous and public, the church's response should be equally decisive, right? In Paul's case, notice that Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 doesn't exercise the kind of patience that Jesus recommends, right? Because I I think what Jesus is saying there is just an abundance of patience that you should take care of the people that are there. However, this man's sin is so grievous, Paul says it's a kind that's not even practiced amongst pagans. This is heinous, outright, and any member of the body of Christ should know that. So this step that we're going through needs to be quick and decisive. Still the goal is repentance, but it needs to shock the person awake because he's so deeply entrenched in sin, he needs to come to life. And if anything's going to do it, this would be the thing that would do it. Um, But if you think about it, if we exercise the patience of the Lord and we confront someone in sin, they still don't listen. We take two or three more, they still don't listen. We take the church, they still don't listen. Has the sin become public? Has the sin become toxic? Have they shown evidence that they, they're not a part of the body of Christ because they refuse to repent? Yeah. So then the, what do we do? Remove them from membership. As long as you refuse repentance. That's what membership is. Remember, what this is is not a witch hunt. This is not Trying to find people that sin and go, let's cut them off. We're all in that boat. Every single one of us. It's not a matter, it's not a question of sin. It's a question of repentance following sin. Does the person remain unrepentant of sin? That's the question. All right. Um, So, church discipline done correctly might bring the sinner center, center to repentance, but it will always faithfully represent the gospel. Because it will declare for everyone that the church body is a repentant church. And it will tell the world, yes, we represent the glory of God. No, we don't do it as perfect people. And here's how we know we don't do it as perfect people. When we're called to repent, we repent. Right? The person who remains unrepentant in sin is the one claiming to be perfect. And that's the problem. Do you understand? They're the ones claiming to be perfect. And we can't have that inside the body of Christ because if the standard is perfection, and that's what it requires to represent God's glory in the world, we're in trouble. Every single one of us. The standard is humility, confronting sin and confessing it. So church discipline should be practiced in order to bring sinners to repentance, which is a warning to other church members. It demonstrates to other church members this is a problem. This is, this is a problem, and avoid it at all costs. It's health to the congregation. It's a distinct and corporate witness to the world, and ultimately to the glory of God, as His people display the character of His holiness. Questions? No, 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 no. That that see, that's the point of church discipline. Like the first step of you going to somebody and confronting them, that is church discipline. Right. Two or more, that is church discipline. Right. What excommunication is when the church goes to them, they still remain unrepentant. Okay, so yeah, correct. So it's it's a yeah yeah. <laughs> I hate to put it that way, but it's know, you get the I idea. Yeah. That's why I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? What's the difference between the and then and uh, their membership away? Nothing. That is the point. Is that the membership in the church body, um, what, what, what should I say? Um, uh, being in good standing with the church body in your membership, mm-hmm. that's participation in the Lord's Supper. So that, a lot, that, that enables a person to have participation right. in the Lord's Supper. Right. When someone is, is either unfaithful in a number of different ways and remains unrepentant, when they're excommunicated, removed from church membership, that is also removed from the Lord's table. You're, you're no, okay. we, we can no longer affirm faith that you actually have in Jesus Christ, and only those who belong to Jesus can take of the elements. I mean, we, we draw. A, a some people will call it fencing the table. We draw a fence around the table. I do every time we take the Lord's Supper. Okay, so Under a number of circumstances. Sending them out sitting out. I'm packing. Like, like well, get away. Well, sending them out the door. them out the door. No. But, yeah. but, no, they're still, they're still in. Sure. They're to us like a Gentile or tax collector. Meaning, meaning that the church understands that this person is one you need to share the gospel with. So there's, there's unbelievers present in every church service we have. And we want that to be the case. We want them to hear the gospel preached. And so even for that person that's removed from membership, it's, it's really the church body saying we cannot confirm your, any evidence that the Spirit actually dwells within you We've confronted you in sin, and you remain unrepentant. Yeah. And as long as you remain unrepentant, how could we possibly confer on you the title of member? the The glory of God is at stake. The name of Christ right. is at stake. And so, removing you from that is removing you from the Lord's table. Locking the doors. Because yeah. I feel so ashamed, I be too right. Well, and that may be the case in some. In some, that's probably the case far more than it is anything else. And, and a lot. And but for us, you know, what, what what Baptists do is kind of a standard practice amongst at least Southern Baptists, but most Baptist churches is somebody goes to another church and joins there. That church sends back and requests for their letter. That's what the letter is supposed to be. The letter is supposed to be: Is this person in good standing at your church? because they're coming to join ours. So, someone who is excommunicated under church discipline, that at least means if they went and tried to join another Baptist church and said, you know, I'm coming by transfer of letter, that church would write back to us, hopefully, and we would say, no, we've excommunicated that person. We don't, we don't think they show any evidence of being a believer in Jesus. So, believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ, disciple of Jesus, Equals church membership. So if there, you're not a follower of Jesus, as evidenced by unrepentance, you can't be a member. That's that's the reality. Otherwise, church membership just becomes the grocery store, or the gym, the country club. The country club. You come in, and that and that's what I'm saying is like we we so often equate the two that when we come to a church, we could I, I may never I may go once every six months. And i 'm still a member at that church, either I give or I do this or that and and I 'm still a member of that church well that's not that shouldn't be true. The Lord commands you not forsake the assembling of yourselves together with the body, and if the Lord commands that, do you what gives you the right to just ignore that and if you 're confronted by it and you still continue to just resist that that should give some evidence that there might not even be the Spirit dwelling within you, in which case you're no kind of church member. But we, we, if we're saying then, no, he is, or she is, they're a church member, what are we saying about the name of Jesus? Well, you don't have to obey what he says. Because, eh, who cares? I mean, that's basically what we're saying. sure yeah so the question was do you Something think it was do you think it was a matter of trying to like kind of boost numbers and like kind of see look how many members we've got and things like that i i think i can't begin to say all of the reasons but i would i would hone in on that one pretty quickly because revivalism came in that kind of idea that spirit of revivalism where it's like we can produce conversions in people and things like that and and all of those kinds of things rather, rather than um, rather than understanding someone coming to salvation as them coming to confront sin and repent of it, we saw it as a means of like walking down an aisle or doing this that or praying a prayer, and that became salvation and and when we do that, basically we think we can produce it. Uh, just look up Charles Finney. Uh, all of those southern Baptist, a lot of the Southern Baptist traditions that became in vogue in the 1900s were produced by him, and he may not have even been a christian and um, and so we started doing that kind of revivalistic thing, and we started counting numbers. We started uh, looking at all kinds of different, um, you know, uh, altar calls and things like this that were all Phineasim stuff, Second Great Awakening, uh, all that stuff. And so we, we started trying to produce that, and uh, the disappearance of church discipline happened, you know, kind of coinciding with that. So there's, there's no question in my mind that, yeah, some of the revivalistic tendencies produced a lot of that. Charles Finney. Um, Charles Finney. I an update Terry Mobs. Terry Mobs. They were not able to do the procedure today. They oh. postponed it to tomorrow okay. because the anesthesiologist is afraid of his seizure. Okay. Alright. Postponed to tomorrow. Timothy? yeah oh yeah 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 um Yeah, well, hopefully you don't take my not saying the word prayer as to be that I don't advocate for it. Um, not only do we pray lots here in the service, we do have prayer meetings and things like that throughout the week. I do see the importance and value in prayer. And never would I try to say that church discipline should, be hap- should happen absent of prayer. Um, of course, that's not at all what I'm saying. Um, just that when we're talking about the practice of church discipline, um, just going through what the scriptures actually tell us to do. And so we're to confront it. But it it absolutely commands us to holiness. Everything that we do, undergirded by prayer, is pursuant to holiness. Question? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for time to gather together and study your word and think through what we are as a church body. Pray for the seriousness with which this topic comes to us and perhaps even a heavy heartedness as we think of those um, who remain in, in unrepentant sin. We pray that you would wake them up, that you would help us to have the boldness to confront lovingly, that they might come to repentance. We pray that this would be ever and always on our mind as we seek to care for those that are around us. We pray also that you would make us holy, even as you are holy. We pray that that would be also on the forefront of our mind. In Jesus' name, amen.